In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is never contemplated. Hello and welcome to another episode of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Heddle Desai. I hope that all of you had a safe and happy holiday season and you're ready to start a new year. Many of us have New Year's resolutions involving our fitness and physical health, but shouldn't we also be checking in on our mental health? As attorneys, we definitely should be keeping out an eye for ourselves and our colleagues. The Florida Bar's Mental Health and Wellness Center survey recently found the following statistics regarding the mental health of the legal profession. 21 to 36% of attorneys qualify as problem drinkers. The number is highest for men, those over 30, and solo practitioners. 11% of lawyers admitted to having suicidal thoughts at some point in their career. In fact, lawyers rank fourth in proportion of suicides by profession. Post-COVID, it has only gotten worse. According to a survey taken by law.com, the number of lawyers reporting anxiety or depression in 2020 increased in comparison to those reporting mental health issues in 2019. The report cited a number of factors, including isolation caused by the COVID lockdown, having to work remotely, disruption in routines, fear of job loss, fear of clients, fear of catching the virus, reduced access to mental health options. All of these contributed to the increase in concern. The good news is, is that the pandemic has also put a spotlight on mental health issues and resources for the public, but especially for the legal profession. You can find suggestions, self-assessments, studies, news articles, and suggested reading at the Florida Bar's Mental Health and Wellness website. There's also a list of places to find help if you need it on that website and on the Florida Lawyers Assistance Program or FLA website. The FLA specifically provides confidential assistance and support to lawyers, judges, and law students who have been negatively affected in their ability to function in their careers and personal lives about alcohol, drugs, mental health issues, or cognitive decline. The FLA fosters identification, intervention, and recovery by providing assessments, referrals, education, and maintaining a supportive network. There are also special resources for judges, the Florida Judicial Wellness Program, and the ABA's National Help Hotline for Judges. Today's guest, Judge Margaret Meg Kerr, sees many solo practitioners in her area of workers' compensation. Judge Kerr was appointed to the post of Judge of Compensation Claims for the Miami office in 2013 by Governor Rick Scott. Judge Kerr has had a slightly different path than the other guests on this podcast in that the law is her second profession. She received her bachelor's degree from the University of Canterbury and worked in various industries and positions before graduating from the University of Miami School of Law in 1993. Judge Kerr was one of the founding members and the first president of the Richard A. Sicking American Inn of Court in Miami, Florida an organization focused on the development of workers' compensation professionals. 
Judge Kerr regularly teaches and lectures on workers' compensation issues and emphasizes professionalism and civility in and out of her courtroom. Welcome, Judge Kerr, and thanks for joining us on Never Contemplated. How are you today? I'm very well, and thank you so much for having me. Okay, right off the bat, I'm sure you get this all the time, but our listeners can probably hear a slight accent. Where are you from? As my parents always told me, I'm I'm a bit of a mutt. I'm from uh, equal time in England and Australia, and now 30 plus years in the United States. So um, I'm not quite sure anymore where I'm from, but whenever I visit family, wherever I go, all I get is, well, you're not from here, are you? (laughs) So somebody has to own me at some point, but I'm not sure where. Well, where did you grow up? As I said, equal time in England and Australia. Um, And I basically went back and forth. Um, uh, I'm a Navy brat. And so uh, we got posted uh, into various places, but finally ended up college in England and then um, law school in America many years later. Okay. And tell us where you ended up going for your undergraduate degree or for your college degree. Well, my undergraduate was at the University of uh, Kent at Canterbury um, in the south of England. And then I uh, and I studied um, economic and social history. And then I, I left undergraduate, moved back to Australia and uh, then to the Caribbean um, and where I worked as a, a dive master and um, then on as a money market trader before finally coming to the United States and worked in the cruise industry and then finally went to law school. Um, And I went to the University of Miami uh, School of Law, which I'm a very proud alumni. uh, And I went through their night program, which was um, a wonderful experience. I want to get to all of that, but I want to to backtrack a little bit. And you said that you were a Navy family and you moved around a lot. were your anyone in your family lawyers or uh, in that profession at all? Not at all. I am the first lawyer that I know of in our family. Our family are um, engineers, architects, and designers. And somehow or other, all of the artistic ability skipped me. And I um, have been, I think my family would say, designed to be a lawyer my whole life. And it was just, <laughs> this is what I'm meant to be doing. Well, tell us a little bit about how it was growing up, uh, traveling all the time. That must have been either an adventure or really hard or both. You know, frankly, a little bit of both. I, I think with anything, everybody's childhood is a mixture of wonderful things and not so wonderful things. And if, if you're somebody that never got to travel, you want to. If you're somebody that traveled a lot, you want stability. So I, I think that it gave me uh, a lot of positives. And I've been very lucky to see so much of, 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 the, of the world as I have. Um, but at the same time, I yearned for some stability. And so that's something that um, I've been able to give my children is uh, stability and, and the ability to grow up in one place. So I think it's a mixed bag as with everything. Well, I want to unpack some of your uh, pre-law uh, occupations. And you said you were a dive instructor. How did you... And was that before or after you got your economics degree? Um, I got the economics degree first and then went out to Australia where I worked as a money market trader uh, for three years and then went to, to the Caribbean and visited my mother who was living there at the time and stayed and, and became a dive master. 
and scuba instructor and boat captain, which I did for then the next um, seven years. And then uh, after that, and uh, I, I came to America and, and went to law school. So it was, a, um, it was a wonderful journey getting there. And I think my parents had got to a point where they were starting to despair of my ever getting what they called a real job. And and becoming a, a, a reasonable member of the of the workforce, but I, eventually it happened. I went to law school when I was thirty, and and that has been really the best thing. My legal career, something I'm very proud of. How did you end up in Miami at University of Miami? I only had forty dollars when I left the islands, and that's as far as I got. And so, uh, with forty dollars in your pocket back then, you could do things like that. I don't know that you can so much do things like that now, but I had forty dollars. A ticket to Miami was as far as I got, and I got a job uh, in in the cruise industry, and then went to law school and and went upwards from there. Okay, and you said you went to night school at the University of Miami. Uh, that's kind of a different experience than I think uh, the traditional daytime law school experience. Tell us what that was like to work during the day and then go to school at night. It, it was very different. Um, but I think you had a, a lot more of what we were, we were called mature students. Um, and you had a lot of people who had to work during the day or were parents, had small children, went a lot of women in the night program um, or full-time jobs and people who had other commitments and did not have the flexibility to be able to um, quit a, a job or not yet have a job and, and go through the day program. Um, and I, I think it was, it, it like everything, it's a mixed bag. The night program was wonderful because everybody was very, very motivated. The professors were motivated. The students were motivated. Everybody was there for a reason. They had made a lot of sacrifices to be there, and they were very uh, willing to push forward and make sure that, that they got their legal career done. But at the same time, because you had to work during the day, you missed out on some of the law school experience. The the when we had justices come and and speak to the students, or you 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 have those opportunities to network with other students, or or, or join um, as a student member and in of court, for example. Those things were not available tonight, students. Um, but so, like with anything else. I, I think you 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 make sacrifices to make things work. And at the same time, you find enrichment wherever you go. Well, I'm sure it was invaluable to have uh, to be working uh, and to know, uh, you know, at least an office setting. What did you do for the cruise lines uh, while you were going through law school? I didn't stay with the cruise lines um, going through law school. Um, I actually uh, after the first year. Um, but I was in the uh, sales service department, which is really a sort of a quasi-marketing um, job, uh, but in a, a support position. And at the end of my first year, when we were then allowed to go on and work in the legal field, I uh, quit the cruise line and I, I got a job interning um, as, as a law clerk uh, in, a, in a law firm. And so I worked as, as many hours as I could uh, so that I was getting experience in the in the the work environment. Well, how did you end up doing? Uh, were you working for a workers' compensation firm at the time when you were in law school? 
Oh my goodness, no. I had no I had never contemplated workers' compensation. I'm not sure that there's many people who go through law school and say, wow, that's something I'm going when I graduate, I'm going to be a workers' compensation attorney. It's something that most of us fell into, and I'm very glad that I did. But no, when I went through law school, my background was maritime. Um, my father had been in the Navy. We were, I was raised as a Navy brat. I went through my my time in uh, in the Caribbean was on the, on the water all the time. Then working for a cruise line, so I wanted to do maritime law, and that's where I started. Was doing maritime law um, in a defense firm, and that they uh, in turn the insurance companies wanted someone to handle their longshore work, longshore and harbor workers compensation act work. And then that translated into them wanting us to handle their workers' compensation work. And that's how I fell into workers' compensation and quickly discovered that I loved it. Um, it's it's a wonderful area of the law. And I'm and I I think you you get to where sometimes where you're going in life by happenstance, but it worked out very well for me. Well, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with that area of the law, it is very, very specialized. Tell us a little bit about the issues that workers' compensation attorneys and judges deal with. And, and I think you're right. It is very specialized, but it, um, it you're dealing with workplace injuries. Um, and of course, that you're dealing with the law for both sides of that, sometimes um, where whether a claimant might feel, of course, our plaintiffs are called claimants, uh, a claimant might feel that they have not been given benefits to which they're entitled, whereas a, an employer carrier, the defence, might feel that there's more being requested than they're entitled to, and so you have a natural, um, a, a natural uh, dispute there. Uh, the thing with workers' compensation is that you have the privilege of being able to see all kinds of different areas of the law so that you have employers from across the spectrum and you have issues from across the spectrum. You can have something from a, a minor issue as far as was there notice, proper notice given to a, a, a tragic accident um, with very, very significant injuries. Um, and you have people's lives really deeply affected by the, the the injuries that are are involved, and it's it's far from clear cut. It's it's a very nuanced statute. It is sta- it is a separate statute, uh, Chapter Four Forty of the Florida Statutes address workers' compensation, and it is very very detailed. But if you tried to practice workers' compensation from the statute itself, you you know you really would be missing half of the interpretation because there's a whole area of law interpreting that statute, and um, and all out of the first district court of appeals, and 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 then obviously with the Supreme Court as well. So it's it's complex, um, but but very very interesting. Well, as you said, uh, it's a statutory process and it's uh, very regulated, uh, very specific. And even you as uh, you became a judge of compensation claims in 2013, uh, the nomination and appointment process is very different from other judicial appointments, Article 5 judges, federal judges. Can you walk us through how you became um, a a judge of compensation claims or what they called a JCC? Well, first off, as you say, we are not Article 5 judges. We are part of the executive branch. 
And uh, a JCC serves um, at the pleasure of the governor. We are appointed for four-year terms. And the process is that you fill out an extensive application for when there's a, a vacancy. And those, those applications then go before a, um, a specialized JNC, Judicial Nominating Committee. There's a JNC specifically for workers' compensation. Workers' compensation judges, um, I think it's the one of the only areas of the law, if not the only area of the law, where in order to um, apply, you have to have a minimum of five years of experience within the workers' compensation field, and that's written into the statute. And, and so you go then before the judicial nominating committee, they choose three candidates, and then those names are forwarded to the governor. And the governor, uh, you then have uh, interviews with multiple people in the, in the governor's office, and then the governor makes a decision uh, on uh, who of the which one of the candidates to choose. So it's a it's a merit um, uh, appointment, and then every four years you fill out you you have to basically reapply, and you go through the same procedure, and then it's merit retention as well. Um, and we are very highly regulated, so everything we do is is monitored. So we have to get our orders out within a specific length of time. We have to have our final hearings. That's what we call a trial. We do mini bench trials uh, within 210 days of the petition being filed. Every uh, There's statistics kept on, to, on how every judge is doing um, on their reversals. Um, and it, it, it's a merit retention as much as a merit appointment. Well, my understanding, going back to the nominating uh, process, is that it's a state, it's statewide, and it is the only, let's say, the, the committee, when you're up for, for reappointment, people can come and comment, but it's a different process. So what is that like? It is a different process, and it's a little nerve-wracking uh, for, for all of us. And yes, I've been through the process twice now, and People have have the right. Everything we do is in service of the public. And just as our hearings are open to the public, we serve at the pleasure of the governor, and the governor wants to be able to know whether the judges are doing a good job or not. And so the people are invited in writing to, to make comments of, about a judge, uh, whether they feel good or bad. If it's negative, if they feel that the judge is um, doing something wrong or not fulfilling their uh, public duties appropriately, they can, in that case, write in and, and give the details, and then they will be expected to speak at the, the JNC meeting. We attend those, uh, well, through the pandemic, of course, we did that by Zoom, but it, up until then, and starting again this uh, December, we do that live, um, at generally at our annual uh, workers' compensation convention in Orlando. And uh, the judges that are up for reappointment, it, with notice, of course, um, if there's somebody who wants to speak against them, they are allowed to do that. And, and the judge is told about it ahead of time and, and then, you know, is asked questions about the position that, this, that, that whoever has raised the issue um, ha has to say. There are, I think, 30 or 31 JCC positions, uh, and they're located around the state. There are 17 JCC offices. Just looking at the website, it looks like there are not a lot of female JCCs. Uh, it looks like maybe 20% or uh, people of color that are JCCs. Do you have any insight into why that might be? 
you're you're correct. The 31 judges and and only 20% are women, and that's a straightforward fact. And and I I but I can't tell you why that is. I don't know if that's because fewer women apply. I don't know if that's because fewer women get chosen. I, I can't tell you that. And I certainly, because we're never given information as to why a particular candidate is chosen over another candidate. I really can't tell you the answer to that. I don't know. But there is no doubt that that is the fact, that we that if, if we have a... Um, Close to fifty percent of lawyers are women, and we have twenty. We only have twenty percent of them are JCCs. I don't have an easy answer for you as to the why, but um, it is something that I would love to see improved. Well, you were in the practice, uh, the workers' comp practice, for a number of years before you became a JCC. Were there a lot of women in the workers' comp bar? You know, I feel that with women were very are very well represented in the workers' compensation bar. Um, it's a very small bar. It, it's getting bigger now because um, of ele- uh, electronics and and technology, so that there's more people doing statewide practices. But in years past, it was just a local bar, and everybody knew each other. And women were have been traditionally pretty well represented. Um, I think, though, that women face the same problems in workers' compensation that they do in other areas of the law, particularly finding a balance between home life and um, their obligations as attorneys. And I, I don't think the difficulties are any less in or more in workers' compensation than they are in other areas of the law. But, there's, but uh, certainly as far as attorneys that practice in front of me, it feels to me like it's a, the women are very well represented. Yes. Now, as to whether they're partners, I don't know in the larger firms. Okay. Well, what uh, would you encourage someone if they were in the field and had the, the requisite experience to apply and become a JCC? I absolutely would. I absolutely would. Uh, you know, I, I practiced um, as an attorney for 20 plus years before I became a JCC. This is without a doubt the best job I have ever had. There's and why is I that? Have no, I have no difficulty saying that at all. When you're in law school and you're you're learning this wonderful thing, the law, you're you're learning learning it in this pure sense. And you're not applying it or trying to argue it. You're just learning it. It's it's this wonderful thing that you you get immersed in the the history of the cases and the progression of the cases. When you become an advocate, you have to take your client's position and you have to find case law to advance your client's position um, on either side. When you become a judge, you go right back to the purity of the law. You you take these facts and you take the the law as it's written or as the case law is, and you apply it to the facts as opposed to the other way around, trying to make the the law fit what you need your client to say. It's coming at it from from the um, academic side of it, if you will, just the simple, give me those facts and, and does the law tell me that I have to do go one way or the other way? Um, workers' compensation is not a court of equity. We have no equity in our rulings. And sometimes that, that can be difficult because we, and I think all the judges, 
in, in Florida. We rule based on the facts that we're given and what the law says we have to do with those facts as opposed to the other way around. So, yes, I would absolutely encourage anyone to, and particularly women, I think it's it's a job that allows you such freedom to continue to learn and continue to enjoy the law as opposed to having to advocate, which is, you know, I, I just, I love it. You're very passionate about being a JCC, but also uh, about the uh, workers' comp field. I know that you uh, were instrumental in starting the local workers' compensation in ends of court there in Miami. Tell us a little bit about what that the ends of court uh, for the workers' compensation does and how often they meet. Certainly. I was I had the privilege of being the first president of the end and it's been the Miami Inn is just finishing up its second year and we have 50 members. And uh, really the, the purpose of the inn is to promote professionalism within the bar, to bring along young attorneys, to make sure that there's plenty of access to mentors, to, to ensure that professionalism is, is consistently important to all the attorneys within the bar. And I think that it, that is the purpose of what the inn is for. And it's really got off to a flying start. I'm very, very proud of, of our Miami Inn. We've got some great members and, and a lot of new um, associates always. We really try to bring the new associates into that, to the inn. And I, I'm, I'm very hopeful about its future, frankly. Well, I know that when you were in law school, you you mentioned that you didn't have the opportunities because you were going to school at night, that some of the other law students did. Um, and so it sounds like this is a way that you're giving back. Um, it's come full circle. We spoke before about your concerns about the pandemic and the kind of stress that you are seeing with attorneys appearing in front of you. Can you give me some examples of of why you're concerned about the the mental health of our profession? I am concerned because I I think it is the nature of attorneys to simply just go out and get the job done no matter what. And I I think the last two years have been very, very stressful. People's practices have changed. They are in some, some cases still working remotely, in some cases working some kind of hybrid fashion. Maybe their support staff are not geographically present with them and they're having to do hearings by Zoom, uh, although we are back live now. It it has been a very, very stressful time for the attorneys. And I feel from the types of presentations that I'm getting from attorneys from their pleadings that they are very stressed. I think what happens is when you have situations where everything takes a little longer and you have to find new ways to get things done, that the workload itself is exponentially increased. Even though you might not have that many more cases, what it takes out of you to get those cases prepared and ready for trial is significantly greater. And I think that's taken its toll on the attorneys. I feel that they're very stressed. And I would encourage people to recognize that if someone on the opposite side of the aisle is doing something that they disagree with, that perhaps recognizing the other party is stressed, not just disagreeing with your position, but really stressed. You don't know what they've got going. Perhaps childcare issues, perhaps 
the inability to get internet, perhaps their computer system is not working as it should. The stress on attorneys right now is really quite alarming is probably the best word I could use to describe that. And it, and it is worrisome you know, to see so many people ha- handling things that really in the past they could have easily handled and now it, it, it appears to be weighing heavily on them. I know that you have spoken about this in the past, um, about the civility between opponents, especially in proceedings before you. You know, it's in our nature as attorneys to advocate as strongly as possible. Uh, What advice can you give about the rules of civility and why it's important in our profession? It's so important on so many levels. You know, I I could get lost talking about this, um, but, you know, one of the things that I think happens is that when you develop some kind of personal relationship with your opposing counsel uh, and you know a little bit about them, you are going to be able to um, compromise on things such as rescheduling a deposition, such as whatever motion you might be doing, a motion to compel an IME. You're able to reach agreement on certain issues. When your only communication with opposing counsel is by text or email. It makes it very difficult to get nuances behind what they're saying or why they're doing something. And so I would strongly encourage people, and I know that that this might be a generational thing and I'm showing my age here, but to pick up the phone and talk to your opposing counsel. Don't do everything by text or email um, because It's so easy to assume that somebody has bad motivation or is not understanding you when the entire communication is by text or email. I think developing those relationships with your opposing counsel and talking to them as a human is is paramount in terms of the importance of being able to work well with your opposing counsel. Well, if someone were having a hard time or knew of someone else who was having a stressful or anxious time, what would you suggest that they do to address the stress or to to help the person that they are concerned about? You know, it's so difficult because you have privacy issues and people, lawyers are a, a tough bunch. You know, we, we don't like to admit that we're struggling sometimes, uh, you know, but I think individually we can reach out to each other. If you think somebody's really in trouble, um, obviously, I, I think there's the, the Florida bar has has resources available to them, and they're so they make themselves so available. They really do. They're wonderful. But I think there's so much to be said for that one on one, just reaching out and as a as a member of the bar to another member of the bar, saying, "Are you okay?" And if you're not okay, say so. No, I'm not okay. I'm stretched to the max. I'm trying to juggle getting my kids to school and the other one's got the flu and I, I've got this due date and I need just an extension of time and say, okay, let me give you three, four, five days extension. What do you need? Those kinds of things that we can do to be kind to each other, I think will go a long way to helping people that we see struggling. I think everyone could use more kindness in the world, but um, tell us what you do to uh, address the stress in your life. Do you still scuba dive? Do you, what kind of wellness activities do you do for yourself? Um, well, I, I, I walk a lot. I, I, I like to walk about five miles a day and, and, but you know what I do and mine is, I, I know this is odd. I, 
I've had some stress in my life. I, you know, uh, I, I I lost my husband a few years ago, but I, and so I've been raising my girls. And one of the biggest joys for me, I, I get such pleasure in talking to my girls. Um, and and I think those uh, as I've got older, the, also the the friendships with my my friends have become more important. And I learned I'm not an island. When I'm stressed, I talk to my friends. I talk to my kids. And I admit that I'm not doing well. And I've found that that has gone a long way to really just taking taking the the, the edge off things because they'll likely tell me they're not having a great day either. And and I, I but for to just calm and be calm. I love to read. I love to walk. And I really I love to talk to my girls and my friends. Well, uh, we had a, another judge talk about friend tours and how important. They were friends and mentors, and it's good to have someone there to bounce ideas out of. So uh, I think that's consistent with that. Well, before we leave, I want to ask you one final question. If you could give one piece of advice to a new attorney in in your proceedings, what would that be? One piece of advice. Be prepared. Don't shoot from the hip. Everything you do, don't assume you know the law because that's what it was 30 days ago. You've got to keep not reading the, the new cases that come out, keep being prepared for hearings, and, and really make sure that you talk to your opposing counsels. And but those two things, being prepared for every hearing, every pleading, having making sure you know that there's case law to support your position, and then talking to opposing counsel, getting to know who they are, um, and developing the relationships with the people who practice in the same bar as you. Those two things, I think, are the best advice I could give a young attorney. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Judge Kerr. Uh, stay safe and keep smiling. You have a beautiful smile. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Judge Desai, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and I've enjoyed myself tremendously. I'd like to thank Clay Shaw, Katie Young, and Rebecca Bandy from the Florida Bar's Latimer Center for Professionalism for making this podcast possible. Links and information to the Florida Bar's mental health and wellness page and the Florida Lawyers Assistance Program can be found underneath the link for this podcast. <laughs>